Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, in the shack, we have Rupert Guinness. Now, he's a sports writer for many, many years and also an author. Now, Rupert has covered sports from Rugby World Cups, Olympic Games and also Tour de France many, many times, which is his passion, cycling. Now, also... He's written uh, his latest book, Power of the Pedal. Now, he has ridden from Darwin to Hobart for mental health. He then talks about how he suffered from bulimia and other mental health issues throughout his life. He's about to leave and take on a massive challenge, a race across America on his push bike. Now, let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Rupert. This week in the Beach Shack, it's uh, great to have Rupert Guinness. Now, he's done a lot in his life, got a great story from being a sports journalist to riding his bike many, many, many miles. So welcome, Rupert. How are you, mate? Great, Hoppo. Thanks for having me today, mate. Well, mate, I I thought I'd start with the uh, sports journalist. You've done a lot of riding and in that area and you've covered some amazing sporty events. So mm. tell us a bit about that. Yeah, uh, certainly. Uh, I think I was very fortunate to have the, the career I had. You know, I started journalism in the early 80s and worked at News Limited and worked at the various papers there, the Telegraph, the Australian, and worked down in Melbourne for a while. And then, then I went over to Europe because during, uh, while I was covering mainstream sports and everything, I fell in love with the sport of cycling and found myself over in Europe working for a cycling magazine and uh, fulfilling what was going to be the dream to cover the Tour de France once. And then I ended up living there for nine years, covering every single bike race you can imagine, and then came back to Australia uh, in 96 and again went back to the mainstream media, to the Australian newspaper, and then later the, uh, the City Morning Herald. And uh, But still cycling was still in my veins, mate. You know, I just had to keep on you know, following, I'd be pestering the sports editors who I worked for, saying, "Hey, this bike race is on again," and their eyes would roll. And uh, to their credit, they uh, either they're trying to get me out of the office <laughs> to stop giving them a headache, or uh, they believed in it. But then uh, I was still able to continue following the tour. And uh, sometimes, you know, the uh, Giro d'Italia, the Italian tour, which an Aussie won just overnight, Joey Hindley, and you know, the dream continued. And uh, at the moment, you know, all, I've covered every. Tour de France since 1987, bar three, two of which was due to COVID. So that's 31 tours, and uh, so cycling became a part of my life. And uh, but my career, I also, you know, I used to cover rugby a lot, rugby union for the Sydney Morning Herald, and uh, got to four Olympic games, covered all those Olympic sports, rowing, which was a sport I really did a lot of before I got into cycling. That was a sport that really steered me to cycling because of the. The endurance capacity of rowing and also when I was a rower, what was called a, a lightweight rower, we had to weigh in like jockeys and boxers, you know, before a before a race. You couldn't race unless, unless you made this minimum weight and I was kind of heavy for a for a rower, so it was always kind of hard and at that time in the early 80s, there wasn't much education about nutrition and, and you know, just eating properly as an athlete and so, you know, I took what was I thought were handy shortcuts, which was basically uh, – regurgitating my food, you know, and then I developed bulimia and then it's amazing how that took hold of my life. And that's where a lot of a lot of what I do now is stemmed around mental health and trying to help people sort of recognise their issues. That's the first step in in uh, trying to move forward. And so my recognition of my wrestle with bulimia was a first step in, in trying to manage that. I still have to manage it today, Hoppo, but it's 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 something that I'm aware of and you you work your own systems out and through that you have support systems as well with people and everything because by talking about it, it helps. And So a lot of what I'm doing now is uh, 
uh, I guess I'm not the traditional uh, journalist, but I'm still a storyteller. So that's how I like to say it and trying to deliver a message and, and a way out for people to find a positive pathway, you know, through their, through their troubled, challenging times. Now, looking back to when you were reporting on sport, obviously, as you said, the nutrition of sport wasn't the same and the mental health side of it isn't as out there as much as what it is today. What do you think's changed from, from back then to now? The, the, the more people speak about it? I think so, Hopper. I think it's, I think it's been a, a something where, you know, there's a lot of people doing a lot of things like what I'm doing and there's a lot of charities out there too, which, which, is, which is great. And I think, you know, obviously back in the 80s and, to large and also to the 90s i think it was it was thought of as not appropriate to talk about your issues you know just look after them yourself and be strong and keep them to yourself don't upset the apple cart if you've if you've got an issue it could be or, or athletes would feel if they express their concerns about their well-being that could be a tick against them for selection and in many ways it was you know you wouldn't talk about that stuff you know because you know you would be if it came down to a borderline selection call you'd be out of the team or the crew or, or whatever and I, I think that now there's a there's sport in general has embraced the awareness of it and I think there's a lot of it's no coincidence there's a lot of champion athletes we see out there who who to their credit do talk about their mental issues because that makes it easier for other athletes to accept or to recognize that you can still be a great athlete with with issues because guess what you're a human being that's all we are we're not all we are Human beings are fantastic people, but we all have issues, and that's not a weakness. It's definitely a strength, I think, to to recognise a weakness or a vulnerability. I prefer to call it, you know. And then it becomes a vulnerability can be embraced as a area that you can uh, work on, like a challenge, and you make improvements. And then next thing you see the positive side of it, and then you get confidence from it and strength. So one thing leads to the other. So uh, definitely, things have changed since the eighties and nineties. In hindsight, looking back, do you think some athletes that you've been reporting on over the years, whether cyclists or, or rugby players or obviously the Olympic Games, that they had a bad tournament or a performance and maybe it was because of what was going on outside of in their own mental health? I, I, I think so. I think so for sure. You know, I think that and, – and it's interesting because now you, when you watch sport, you, you can't help but sort of consider – the 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 you know, how much is the pressure playing on an athlete's mind, but not being judgmental about it because I think that's the, that's one of the big differences now. You can see an athlete, and you do see you know it could be the last set or the tie break in, a, in an open tennis tournament, or it could be the last five kilometres in a marathon, or, or or the last mountain climb in the Tour de France. And it's not always physical side that breaks down. It's it can be the mental side, but that's that's a component in performance, mental and physical size components. And whether if, if, if an athlete breaks down physically in the past, people will say, oh, yeah, he broke down, got an injury. But if he broke down mentally, they'll say he or she, oh, he cracked or she cracked. You know, it's, it's all the full package is the mental and the physical size. And I think if someone is deemed as having mentally cracked, you know, I, I still think that's, that's an unfair branding to put on them. If we accept that someone gets injured, you know, it's it's and that fight and that particularly in elite sport, but it relates to everybody and everything they're doing in sport and out of sport. When the pressure moment comes, how do you find that calm spirit to make a clear as decision as you can without the pressure getting to you? I mean, you've you've experienced that yourself, Hopper. I'm sure in, in life saving in a, in a life or death situation, got to keep calm and in control, and not every decision you make is going to be the right decision, but. You have to give yourself the best chance to do the best thing you can humanly do. And I think that's great with, with seeing that in sport. Mate, 100%. And, yeah, as you said, we, we all go through, no matter what job you do, whether you're famous, whether you're a multimillionaire or, or whatever you are, just a, a, an ordinary person that's getting through life a, as is, we all have our great times. We also we all have our tough times that we have to deal with and it's – no different than no matter what you're doing, as you said, we're all human. Mm, exactly, exactly. That's why one of the great things about what I love about cycling is, you know, you have the group or the peloton, as they call it, and you've got a bunch there and, and underneath all the lycra and in winter underneath all the uh, the headgear and the scarves and all that sort of stuff. They could have chief executives of multinational companies or tradespeople. None, none are better than the other because they're all human beings on a bike trying to ride uh, as well as they can. And, you know, uh, a chief executive can go up the mountain as fast or as slow as 
as, as the tradesperson or the student. You know, it's it's a leveler. And and again, we do see that in other sport as well, in swimming and, and everything in the sport. That's that's what I think. One of the great aspects of sport is it does it is a leveler. It puts everybody on a on a starting point. Even in a race, everyone's on the same starting line. The outcome is different, but everyone is on the same starting line. And in the true spirit of sport, it's great when you see at the end of an event, whether it's a race or a charity ride or a, a fun run or whatever, people recognizing each other's efforts and quite often enjoying the stories of the challenges that they face that got them to the finish. Yeah, you reported many years now on the Tour de France. Now, unbelievable athletes. Well, who do you think was the one of the best you've seen in that tour? Gee, it's 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 an interesting question because it's something you could you could be normally you could say is easy to answer by by names, but you know cycling, like a lot of sports, has has had its uh, you know it's had its heroes, but it's had its villains as well. You know, it'd be easy to say, you know, a lot of people would say Lance Armstrong, but uh, his his history, not just in his history in doping, because in his era it's been clear that uh, you know the majority or a large proportion were, were doping. But also his uh, his bullying tactics and the way he treated people was very much, you know, as unsavoury as as he's treating as a doper. But I think some of the athletes that really impressed me the most were um, I, I've got to say Cadell Evans, the Australian who won the Tour in two eleven, the first Aussie to, to to win that race. And Aussies have been competing in the Tour since nineteen oh four. And I, I had the you know I followed Evans's career, so it was great to follow his career from being a you know, mountain biker to a Tour de France champion. And there were many, there's many of the highs, there was a lot of lows in his career and, and relationships between the media and him were never always uh, great, but that was part of the journey. And one of Cadell's, I think one of the Cadell's great assets is that when he, when he got, I remember the day he got the yellow jersey in Grenoble on the uh, last second last stage in 2011 after a time trial, and, you know, he sort of shared the journey with everybody as much as he could. But when he came into the press room, he even sort of recognised that. The press room actually applauded him. He was astounded that they did. And, um, you know, it was sort of a nice recognition that, you know, we'd all been through this journey together, the highs and the lows. And Cadell's win there was 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 a fantastic win. You know, the way he won was fantastic. But the first Aussie was fantastic. And I think the young guy, Jai Hindley, who won the Tour of Italy overnight, you know, first Australian to do that, and he will he will emerge into a into a, a super champion, and he is already a super champion. But he will he's got many years ahead of him. But a big influence for me though was as a cyclist was Phil Anderson, who was the first Australian to ever wear the yellow jersey of the Tour in uh, nineteen eighty one, and he was very much the the instigator of my interest into cycling and following the Tour because I was working at the newspaper then and just saw a little agency report come through saying, oh, Australian Phil Anderson wears the, uh, claims the yellow jersey. And I thought, what's this yellow jersey and this Tour de France? And then from there sprouted the dream of following the Tour and reading about these legends and the countries they rode through and raced through and the conditions. And um, back then, obviously, there's no internet. And so all the stories would come through in magazines that would be six months late from Europe and it was still like it's just like reading it live, you know. And the, the 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 stories were written beautifully because there was no internet, there was no TV for us to see. So the writing had to be really, really good. You had to, we used to speak of you know the wisp of crosswinds blowing across through the valley, and then you sort of immersed yourself in this uh, in this environment with reading it. It was beautiful, and uh, and and so much of Europe was historically significant from. Not just the world wars, but I think you know, Europe's been ravaged by war tragically, and still is today, so many times. But everywhere where a bike race would go through would be past a historic, and albeit often tragic landmark. But it made you think about the places it goes through. It made you think about history. So it was a real broad brush answer there, Hoppo. But I think Phil Anderson was the big, probably the biggest name for me, and and we became really good mates, and uh, we are still very good mates, and. One of my dreams to go to Europe was to write a book on him, and I've written about fifteen books now, but I still haven't written the Phil Anderson book. <laughs> so maybe that's one last thing I got to do. But uh, so I'd say Phil Anderson, yeah. yeah. And and as you said, with reporting on events now, obviously back then you gave a a really good analogy on on how it was done, but 
these days must be hard reporting on events because I can stand there at the Tour de France with my, my phone, camera, video, do it, post it on social media before you could even maybe even see yeah. the shot. Oh, that's happened to me, Hopper. I remember a few years ago, I was, I was working at the Herald and uh, at the Sydney Morning Herald and, um, you know, because the how you cover the tour had changed as well because when I first started, you used to be able to just go ahead of the peloton and drive slowly, follow the breakaways on the actual race route. Sometimes you just go ahead, toot your horn, go past it and get an hour up the road, find a nice little place, you know, have some lunch and wait for the breakaway to go, then order the bill to pay the bill. You know, it's like a nice little Sunday <laughs> drive. Now it's just chaos. You just you don't, No one goes on the route now because it's because of the demands of 24 hours out of seven uh, reporting, as you said, you know, people with iPhones by the side of the road. So you have to get off the road on an alternate route, go up. It's a race along the auto route. And all the other race cars are doing the same thing. And every petrol station, the same entourage of cars are coming in, people trying to get ahead of the queue to get to the finish. And then uh, anyway, a few years ago, I remember it happened where there was some scene where going up a mountain and one of the riders had to go to the toilet for number twos, not number ones. <laughs> it was a full crowded mountain. And this cyclist... He just sort of stopped by a motorhome and just ran into someone's motorhome <laughs> and came out <laughs> and uh, it emerged what had happened. Anyway, this was on someone's iPhone and so I got a bit of a ragging by the end, like, well, I missed the story. That was the story of the day. And I said, how the hell could I have covered every single kilometre, let alone yeah. every single dump by an athlete, yeah. let alone, you know, yeah. like, but it was held against me. So, yeah, because yeah. someone had it yeah. on an iPhone. So. Yeah, it must be, it must be tough, <laughs> but... But what's it like? It must be – I'd love to do it one day just to see it and, and see what it's all about because it's – you know, I, I haven't been a massive cyclist. I'm more of the you know, ocean paddler and swimmer and, and, and done a lot of that and running. But it's something that – I always watch it on TV and it intrigues me in the countryside and just doing that trip along, it must be amazing. It is, mate. It is. It's – I mean, yeah, so given that, you know, Europe's a beautiful continent, France is, is a beautiful country and – one of the great things I like about the Tour de France or, or road cycling is that it's an event that comes to to the people and it comes to the people for free. It can come if you're lucky enough. It comes right past your doorstep. It comes to your village. It, it's it's free and it's um, or you can you can go to it as a as a tourist, see it for free and follow it. And the atmosphere that follows the Tour de France is like a festival every day, like a grand final every day for for three weeks. And it's it's tiring and fatiguing, but it's it's great fun. It really is great fun, and um, you know I'd still recommend anybody you know who wants to do it to to go there and 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 watch, if not all the tour, just follow the tour for a few days. It's it's a great for the for the villages and towns that it goes through. Obviously, it's worth a lot of money, but for the really small villages in between the the big cities where the stages start and finish, it really gives a lift to the spirit of, of these country villages and towns. And you can see on their faces the glee and joy of the locals, and and you know all that they like to celebrate the day the tour starts. If I recommend, if anyone goes to a, a, a tour, go to a small village, get there a couple of days before when it's dead quiet, and you think, who would live here? Like there's nothing happening here, <laughs> and it's like a blank canvas. And then suddenly you see, gradually, literally by the hour, oh, there's a little bit more something's busy happening here. And then suddenly someone starts putting up some some balloons and some. Uh, you know, and then suddenly more people arrive and suddenly it's also all bills and bills and bills and suddenly the advertising caravan comes through, press cars come charging through, there's noise and suddenly the peloton comes through, there's helicopters above and whoosh, it all goes through and then suddenly the village goes back to being this nondescript, quiet little place where you'd wonder who would live here. Well, those people who live there, they've had the time of their life at the tour, the world's biggest annual sporting event, came to their doorstep that day. I mean, it's, and it's great to be there. Yeah. And the wine's flowing, the cheese is being cut nicely. And are <laughs> <laughs> oh, you going to be dreaming now, mate? <laughs> mate, I'm just about to go online and book my flight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Rupert, you um, spoke a little bit about your, the mental health side of things, mm. and you went through some tough times. And tell us a bit about that. Yeah, it's 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 something which is probably something I started to realise. You know, sort of in my uh, say say late thirties and forties, rather than at the time. Like I said, you know, I spoke about my rowing days as a lightweight rower and having to get down to weight, and um, and then uh, there wasn't much education about nutrition, and so you know, I went down the path of 
what I thought was a simple thing to regurgitate my meal, eat big, regurgitate my meal. I could enjoy both worlds, but then it became a habit too easily and it consumed my life. But before then, when I was a tacker at school, I was more of a rotund type of person rather than the skinny, nifty, purebred athlete. And I was never really good at the ball sports. So at rugby, I only played tight head prop and no one ever passed the ball to the tight head prop. And I'll just do the, do the scrums and try and get to the second or third phase of play if I could. And, um, so I guess through those years, I had some self-esteem issues without realising it because the people would, you know, used to call me meatball all the time, which I don't, I'm not angry that they did, but I think just incrementally it sort of put a, a body image issue in me. Uh, you know, it made it an issue for me. And so as time went on, I went into more and I think I was looking for something which I was good at that others, that the cool kids were not good at, you know, and I guess endurance sport was it. So I often found myself with footy training doing extra runs and then I, got, I took up rowing at school and everyone would say, you know, they used to just call us dumb rowers, you know, and, and the the image was that we'd train and train and train and fall asleep at class and which which was partly true, but it was it was something that 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 the cool nifty kids didn't have to do, and we had to do the hard jacket. So I tried to take esteem out of that. And as as years progressed with my lightweight rowing, and then the whole stigma of body image still continued, and and being overweight and bulimia. Once it takes over, with me it was a bit like I say to people, it was a bit like a robber in the night. You're walking along calmly, and suddenly, bang! It jumps. The robber jumps out from behind the tree, and you don't see it happening. And next thing, you're mugged and and with with bulimia, my day could be going well, positively, you know, and suddenly something just sort of upsets the apple cart a little bit and it triggers off something that sort of steers me towards the toilet bowl and next thing it's got you. And then you feel really depressed because you think, oh, I've left, I've let myself down. I've just gone, you know, three months without doing this or something. And then it, you feel, you feel at a real low because you feel like you've really gone down the ladder. And you've got to start again, but that's the challenge. You know, you you've got to get back on the horse and get going again, and and work on it and recognise it. But I'm getting better at it now, much better at it. But it's still still there. And so with me, that was my mental issues that that I've sort of struggled with. And I learned to sort of after I try and talk to people, and that's the first thing I thought of was like, heck, if you talk to someone, that's besides recognising your problem, the next. Uh, or your issue, talking to someone is going to be the next most positive step you can make. So we'd do some country tours and uh, go out in the outback and go to country towns and not going there to sort of preach a mantra or do this, do that, but going to listen to people. And and I would openly say, yeah, look, I'm, I'm from the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Yeah, I don't come out to the country enough. I, you know, I hear you've got problems, but you know, you think of that that big gap between the city and the and the outback or rural regional Australia. Instead of trying to hide it and pretend you know all about it, just go out there and listen to people and, and and respect them because you're going to their area. So not go out there to go preaching something, and but you respect you're respecting their area. And um, the stories that we heard that they would exchange were, were heartbreaking in many ways, but they they they, had, they were also uplifting because they would be talking about issues which not from a negative sense. They'll be talking about from a positive of how they're moving forward. And you'd hear these stories and you think, wow, gosh. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I can't believe that they're so positive. Well, they are that positive, and their issues. I think, well, my issues are nothing compared to theirs. So, what have I got to worry about? But you know, it's just this exchange of, of, of talk. And grace, the grace of the bicycle is that you can go to these places quietly and not with bells ringing and not with, you know, like you're you're imposing yourself. You're just coming on a quiet bicycle. And you turn up to the local pub. You may be a bit of a curiosity as you walk into the local pub with your lycra in all sorts of colours. <laughs> but just sit there and let's soak it up and listen. And before you know it, they'll be talking to you. Well, do you think the, the cycling definitely helped you with your mental health? Because you did go on. I mean, you have written, as you said, a lot of books. But the latest one was Power of the Pedal. And um, you've done some amazing rides. Yeah, yeah, they've been uh, – Challenging rides. I mean, the first ultra ride I did was called the Indian Pacific Wheel Race, and um, that was from Fremantle to Sydney, but via across the Nullarbor, but via Adelaide and down the south through Melbourne and up through the Victorian Alps, and and that and then that was a solo unsupported ride. So you did it without a support crew, and that was very much a that was 
in 2017 and that was very much a breakthrough for me mentally to recognize a lot of what we've just been talking about because obviously I had a lot of time to think alone out there on the Nullarbor but you also had experiences exchanges with people who would help you or who'd be there to support you but they didn't have to and it really uh, it, it really humbled me as how how honest and good people can be when you get caught up in all the all the uh, hysteria and hype of city life where people can talk a lot but not actually say a lot you know, and that's what I found the big difference. Yeah, we talk a lot, but what do we actually say? You know, what do we actually, what meaning comes out of it? So that really, the, the two went hand in hand. That year in 2017, I didn't finish the race because uh, when I reached Adelaide, the guy who was coming second was tragically killed when he got hit by a car, Mike Hall. And so I went home. But then the next year, I went and did it again and um, I finished it. So that was 5,400 kilometres. So I finished. I was very happy with that, and obviously people think, "Oh, you're going to lay that to rest." And you know, the, the, you know, when these things happen, and people say, "Oh, that, you've got that out of your system." I went, "Well, no, not actually. <laughs> I said, I've only just started now." And and, and one of the one of the in the genre of bicycle racing of, called ultra racing, yeah, there's another type of event which is solo supported, which uh, and the one is called Race Across America. And a lot of the discussion in the ultra distance world is which is harder, solo, unsupported, where you've got to look after your own food and drink and accommodation and you take backpacks and everything, or solo supported. So the journalist in me thought, well, you know, one way to find out is to do it, you know. And so for the last three years, I've been, I qualified for it. I've been training for that and I haven't been able to do it because of COVID, one cancelling the race. And then last year, the, the travel bans made it impossible. So, Race Across America is 4,900 kilometres and you've got to have a support crew. The big challenge with this is you have to finish within 12 days. So the support crew really has to work in an efficient clockwork way with food supply, drink supply, mechanical supply, moral supply, you know, to provide uh, enthusiasm and to keep you awake. And you've got to finish it in 12 days. And that's where I'm going to, thus on June 14. So I'm at the fine end of my preparation ready to finally do this this event and if you don't make it in 12 days you get eliminated by the way so it's a lot of energy and preparation that could be for naught if you don't stay within the time limit so that's the pressure yeah i mean it's exciting times but as you said there's a lot of pressure on it because you wouldn't want to be getting you know 100 kilometers away and that that 12 days is starting to tick away and you might not make it if you're so close yes well there's two checkpoints along the way which you have to make as well that'll keep you on on course and it's amazing how you lose time so quickly and you know mathematically if you if you ride at 20 kilometers per hour for 20 hours a day you'll do 400 kilometers and you'll finish in the time limit but that's an easy equation when you compare you know the elements of mother nature then you've got mountains you've got deserts you've got mechanical issues health issues and plain old you know bad luck or misfortune or anything, you know. So there's a lot of things that will change that mathematical equation severely. So you've got to have that. And, and, and while I'm racing as an individual, it's still very much a team thing because, as I said, you've got to have the, the crew support there. And a lot of riders in the past, a lot of their end result has been impacted negatively or positively but also negatively by how the team crew operates because they get fatigued and because um, they're having to – it's not probably not the greatest exciting thing to follow a guy at 20 kilometres per hour <laughs> for 4,900 kilometres. I'm sure it's one of those things where the hype of the event and once the event starts, you go over the first hill and it's like, okay – this is it for the next 12 days sitting in this car. So it's really hard on them too. So they have to maintain their unity as a team and their efficiency as a team and, and, and morale with amongst themselves as well as obviously doing the job of supporting it. So it's an interesting human experiment, that's for sure. Will you, after this one, sit down and maybe write a book about the, this cycle race? Uh, I'd, I'd like to. Uh, well, I, I did write a book you know, about the, you know, the the Overlander, about the uh, Indian Pacific wheel race, and then I'd like to write one about about this too. I just got to find that thread. You know, I don't want it to be just a repeat of the last one. So I think that um, some idea will come somewhere. But I, I'd like to. I think it's got to be broader than just a story of a of a bike of a crazy bike race. You know, I think it's got to be a, a story of you know a personal story or a story of people working together to achieve something, in this case, to get a bicycle across a country in a, in a, in a, 
in 12 days. You could probably Federal Express it to be quicker. <laughs> <laughs> how do you – the preparation must be insane. I mean, obviously you do a lot of kilometres. Mm. And then how do you qualify for that? You mentioned you had to qualify for a race like this. Yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of different races around the world where you can qualify for it. I'm, I've qualified for it through a, an event called Revolve 24, which was a 24-hour race, which I've done three or four times now. But it's, I mean, it is hard. 24 hours is, is hard. Of course, it's not as hard as 12 times 12, 24, but I'd say to people the hardest part is that first 24 hours when you go from being, you know, tapered, fresh, comfortable to that first transition into, you know, mental and physical pain, fatigue, even questioning, oh, my gosh, I've got to do this for another 12 days. So that whole, you know, that's because you, you do transcend from one mindset to the other because in, in RAM or in any ultra-distance event, you do go through a transition in your mind where you go through the mental and physical pain, you know, like you peak with a lot of pain, then you dip, then you get out of it or vice versa, and then you get out of it and then you get that sort of assurance, I can get out of this suffering, but then there will be more dips. Then you just get into this state where you actually can't remember much for the last days. We, we did, with, with, with uh, when COVID cancelled in 2020, they did hold a virtual race across America, which which I did, which was on a home trainer. And we had about 18 entrants from around the world. And um, I obviously did mine in Australia, but I did mine in a, um, in a car yard up in uh, Monavale, so in a garage for 12 days. <laughs> <laughs> that was hard because you weren't going anywhere. You're just still there at the same spot every day of every hour. Geez, that'd be tough. And then, so you actually did the 12 days and obviously you made it within the yep. 12 days doing yes, that? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, I made that and uh, I think I finished seventh or eighth or something like that. And your kilometres were, were marked differently. I mean, I think I didn't – only one person did – they because of the, the differentiation and how kilometres were calibrated on the home trainer to the real course, I think they had the mark – you know, only one person did 4,500 kilometres. So it was ended up being how many kilometres you could get done in those 12 days. So I was like up to 3,000 Seven hundred or something like that. I can't remember what it was, but it was it was a crazy twelve days. I know that much. You know? What was it like when you walked out of the garage after being there for twelve days? Oh, a lot of fresh air outside the garage. <laughs> I don't know how they sold cars there because you know it was certainly. It's uh, funny enough though. I, I did actually when I had medical tests afterwards. It was kind of interesting. I had an old, old barrage of cardio, but also blood tests. The doctor said, oh, my vitamin D was way down. And he said, I don't understand. You ride all these kilometres and why is your vitamin D down? And I said, well, you know, I just did 12 days indoors in the garage. So you just think of those, those natural elements. It's, yeah, I found it quite interesting. It was quite lit up, the garage. But just from that, you know, how your body can be impacted without even knowing it. If I didn't have those tests, I wouldn't even thought about vitamin D, you know, and the importance of it that you get from being outdoors. So it's interesting. There's a whole lot of interesting little things you pick up along the way. So you're off soon, uh, mm. next couple of days, I think you're saying, and getting yes. ready for that big race. Yeah, certainly am. Getting uh, got to take my two bikes with me, get them packed and ready, and get all the things I think I've need done. I'm going to Boulder first, to up in the altitude of Colorado to. Not to sort of train my guts out, just to do some simple, easy riding, but to rest up there and get some sleep up at altitude and and a bit of you know, a bit of uh, calm before the white noise of the event. You know, before you come into the start area for the that couple of days before, when you know there'll be people running around, people panicking because they haven't got things ready. Just like to, we're we're our plan, and again, this could be like the old Mike Tyson adage. You know, everyone has a plan to get punched in the face. Our plan is to be there two days before at Oceanside in California where it starts, just bullshitless with nothing to do, thinking, oh, tapping our fingers, having watched binge sessions on Netflix, you know, thinking, let's just get this show on the road. That's the plan. I'll have to tell you later, Hoppo, what happens. <laughs> I'll have to get you back on that and see how you go. Oh, yeah. uh, is there a lot of mountains, a lot of hills, a lot of different uh, yeah. terrain you've got to go through? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's mixed and varied, and um, like the mountains, there's fifty eight thousand meters of elevation to to climb. When I did the Indy Pack race, there was like thirty two or thirty four thousand meters, so I thought that was a lot. So here we got fifty eight thousand meters. The, the the first mountain you go over, like as soon as you, well, in the first day when you leave the Barmy coastline at Oceanside, 
you, you turn there's a hill where you turn around and you see the ocean for the last time for 12 days and you go over the other side and there's they call it the glasshouse elevator and it's a really long descent straight into the desert of Arizona where you could be stuck there for three or four days depending on how fast you go but the temperatures regularly go over 50 degrees um, that's where a lot of people abandon there so that's going to be the first challenge to get through that 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 really furnace like heat and that's going to be a test more as, as much on the crew as me and how well they keep me cooled and hydrated and you've got to have your processes all, all ready for that but then there's yeah there's mountain ranges there's the there's the rockies the sierra the uh, and at the end at the, at the pinch end of the course the appalachians we've got flat plains across kansas where I guess, you know, winds, uh, you know, whether they're hurricanes or whatever, could end up like a cow being flipped up into, into the sky, hopefully drops from the other <laughs> side, a few kilometres up the road. But you've got all that in rain. And I guess that's the nature when you go across the continent, you're going you're gonna to get all that, that variety, which, which is actually really, I think it's really cool because when you get to the end, the, the unknown is one of the great things, isn't it? You know, you just don't know what's there and the challenge will be how do you, how do you cope with that? And that's one of the things I've I like. I get out of ultra race, racing is, and I sort of alluded it to before when you get those peaks and troughs, and you, really you get stripped bare emotionally and physically. Uh, I think in day to day life, a lot of us don't get challenges like that in our society because society is, is generally for a, for a lot of us. I won't say everybody. There's a lot of people suffering. I realise that, but we don't actually get really tested of what we've got inside us. And I think human beings inherently have so much more inside of whether it's you call it survival strengths or whatever it's it, it is there and um i like to find out what i've got inside me and and what i have inside me may not be may not please me either you know but it's how you get out of that situation is is as much as the uh, the strength of the answer you know it's not so much how you can it's how much you can endure but if there's a setback how do you respond to that setback that's just as important so there's those moments over and over again in an ultra race like Race Across America that you'll face. And at the time, you, I mean, it's absolutely the most miserable feeling I think I could imagine, but I'm sure there's worse feelings because I, I entered this event. So that's the thing I always remind myself. I subscribe for this. There are people who suffer, you know, just mercilessly because of fate dealing them a, a rotten card. But it's an interesting experiment to do it. And we have a, you know, a filmmaker on board who will be doing daily stories for SBS in their website. SBS Sport, and you know we will be documenting it. So, warts and all documentation of everything that happens. Um, I think that's important for the integrity of what, if we're trying to put the message out there about you know human physical, mental strengths and the, the mental challenges and mental well-being and everything else. You, you, I think you've got to be honest with with what you're experiencing, and if how I respond is not a positive way, I guess that's me. You know, you've got to be as honest with that as you can. You mentioned uh, just for the listeners that may want to follow your journey. What, what's the best way? You said SBS and uh, yeah, be able to follow. Yeah, on their website on SBS Sport, their website will be running daily stories on it with videos and through my Instagram, everything Rupert on my Instagram will have videos and links to where you can find the stories and plus other social media coverage we'll have up through. We'll have a social media manager on board as well providing, you know, updates during the day and the night. That'll all be going through my other social media outlets on, you know, Facebook, Guinness, Twitter. It'll all be all be out there. And certainly uh, we'll be open for anybody who wants to call in. You know, I may not be able to take the call myself, but you know, somebody in the support crew will always be there to, to be able to, to take the call or, you know, respond to the uh, social media challenge that we have. Well, a lot of listeners uh – come from the US that listen to this podcast. So anyone out there, yeah, go down and support Rupert. Yell out to him and say, mate, I heard you on Life's a Beach <laughs> and uh, give him a good cheer as he goes along. Oh, mate, it'll make a difference, I can tell you. It's amazing what a, what a cheer really does do. You know, you can be on your knees suffering, thinking, oh, what am I doing here? And then just someone gives you a smiling face and says, good on you, mate. Keep it going, and it really, honestly, it really, really lifts you. I've had some pretty emotional moments when it's happened because it's just the power of that is just unbelievable. When you're rock bottom, the power of that is is as good as any anything you can feel in your life, I reckon. Because there must be times when you are rock bottom, you go, "Look, I'm going to have to pull out here." Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are, there are, there are times. 
and I felt those times, you know, uh, even like last year we did Darwin to Adelaide around Uluru and um, there was times where I felt I felt like that was one day, one period where we had block headwinds for three days straight and and we were talking about riding through the night and everything, just the headwind was there and I kept on thinking it was going to blow out and then I thought, oh, no, it's not. And then I thought, I remember during the day I turned around to the support crew thinking I was going to see a signal from them to say, intervene to say, hey, Rip, stop, just have a sleep and let's just wait until the storm finishes. I turned around almost, I think I was almost pleading for intervention, but all I saw were blank faces, three blank faces in the car just driving on. They were just talking, you know, like and I thought, oh, I felt so alone, but that was it. And I realised you just got to keep turning the pedals, you know, and just you'll get to the end eventually, just not as quick as you'd planned, that's all, but you'll get to the end. So, and that was just a shift in mindset. But, yeah, I, yeah, I, I wanted her to stop there. Actually, we did stop at one place for a coffee, and I said to one of my crew, I said, look, if someone's going to pull me out of the race, you know, I said, I'm not going to be pulled out of the race if someone wants to pull me out of the race. And they said, "We no one's saying about pulling you out of the race. I went, oh, okay. You know, like, but it's almost <laughs> like I was the one who's I was the one who wanted to be pulled out of the race. It's like a reverse mindset in my warped, crazy head at the time. Because you don't actually think rationally either. That's the other thing, Hoffman. When you get halfway into these events, a lot of what you say doesn't make sense. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Be a lot of a uh, lot of thoughts going through your head. You, as you said, mm. you've got so much time to think about everything that's yeah, possible, and uh, yeah, yeah, it must must be tough. Yeah, your brain's just one big onion, just being peeled. One thought is being peeled down, and it made me think. You know, when you hear of when, when people are in uh, solitary confinement, and you know, you see in the movies, and they're they're stuck there in a dungeon, and they survive years there, and, they, and, you, and they, you hear these stories of how they. They just what keeps them motivated is they think of like dinner parties, you know, what the menu will be and what each course will be made of, and they break it down to every single little, little like how they'll shave the, the carrot and all that sort of stuff, and that, that happens, you know. I, I break down simple thoughts and they become very complex, which become crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rupert, base great listen to the stories, and and hopefully you have a great race in you know the race across America and. I'm sure you do well, and uh, I'm going to follow you, mate, uh, on your journey. Now, at the end of the interview, I do um, a segment called Five Fun Facts. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to put a little bit of pressure on you now just to prepare you for your race. Okay, here we go. Decision-making okay. under pressure. Yep. <laughs> Might give you something to think about. Anyone on the bike, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll, I'll probably change my mind by the time I'm on the bike. <laughs> mate, the first one, favourite childhood memory. Favourite childhood memory? I would say, and I'm not just saying, you know, because you're down at Bondi, but when I was a tacker, I used to, up at the uh, south end of the uh, of the beach there, sit on the grassy hill up there with my board and my mates, yeah. just sitting there, get there as early as I could in the day, sit there all day, you know, until, yeah. until well, we didn't have mobile, so mum and dad couldn't call me back either. I knew I was in the shit because I was going to be late. <laughs> but just wait, sitting there and then, when, you know, as the, as the break changes over the day and just going in and out and just talking with my mates then, and it seemed like you know those endless summers, and uh, it was just beautiful. And how hungry you were because you didn't have money to buy a lot of food, but you just went out for another surf. Those days are golden. Every time I go past Bondi, I think of there, look up the hill, and think of what was. Good. You know, mate. Uh, who is the messiest person you know? Aside from myself, <laughs> um, this is. Do I choose someone who's uh, nearby or who's a neighbour or? Uh, um, Anyone you want, mate. Look, I know who who is. It's it's it's, it's actually well. I'm not saying playing a safe card here. It's just a, a journo mate of mine called Andy Hood, who works for an American magazine called Velo News. And we shared a, a lot of times on the road on the tour together, sharing rooms in real divey little low budget rent motels. I wouldn't even call them that. And um, one thing you learn when you're in a small place like that, you've got to be economical with your use of space. Well, he was not. You find all his dirty laundry all over you in the morning and you think, what the hell have you been doing last night, mate, you know? <laughs> anyway, I'd say him. <laughs> but what's a body part you would, wouldn't would mind losing? That's a hard one because it's easy to say, oh, I just chop a toe off, chop a finger off. But when you get an injury, it's it's funny how reliant you are on your little pinky or your, or your toe, you know, for balance. You find you can't. So some people would say chop my head off because there's a lot of – <laughs> a lot of crazy ideas going on in there that could solve a lot of problems but that wouldn't be too good for my uh, long-term uh, health I don't think 
Well, I, yeah, look, I would have to say, oh, man, this is really hard because I don't want to sound, for people who have lost this limb, I'm sure it's been hard and challenging for them, but I would say my arm, one yeah. arm, yeah. because with one arm gone, I know there'd be a lot that I couldn't do, but I think there'd be a lot that I could still do and I could still run and walk. So I think I would choose that as, as, as large as that limb is and as important as it is and as large as it's missed by people who have lost their, their arm, if that makes sense. Mate, uh, favourite sport? Uh, it'd be easier to say cycling. I could say cycling, but I'll, I'll, have, I'll think of another because you know, it's too easy to say cycling. Rowing. But I used to row, and despite my issues with bulimia, uh, it hasn't scarred my love of the sport. It's a beautiful sport. It's one of the hardest sports. You, you know, you're at your anaerobic threshold after 10 seconds, and somehow you've got to hang on for that for another six minutes and, and find more energy and strength. It's so reliant on skill. So the beauty of rowing is, is yeah, the beauty, it's just bewildering the beauty of rowing, seeing, it, seeing a crew or a sculler row so well, and it's so hard. Um, I'll say rowing. If you were DJ, what would your DJ name be? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, geez. the only thing, the only reason I'm saying this is because sometimes people used to used to call me as a nickname because Rupert sounds like Roop, right? And sometimes people would say Roop Dog. So I suppose <laughs> I suppose it'd be Roop Dog. I wouldn't call myself that though. I don't think I'd be a DJ. If you ever saw my music collection, I wouldn't have much of a floor to be playing to. <laughs> Mate, Rupert, great answers. It's uh, fantastic to have a chat to you. It's uh, always great sitting back, listening to people's stories and, and also the tough times that they go through and how they get themselves out of it and move forward. So... Mate, I appreciate your time. No, Hoppo, thank you, mate. And, uh, you know, I've, I've listened to, you know, some of your, your other guests and, like, as you said, mate, they're great stories and they're honest stories, real real stories, and that's really important. Like we said, connecting people, connecting minds. You, people, everybody has a story and there's a lot to learn from each other, mate. So thank you for the privilege to join you. Now let's go to Beach Banner. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, we've got uh, Maddie Calhoun, which is uh, better known as the head these days. But uh, I want to dig deep to where it all began. And everyone knows in Australia, we all get a nickname from somewhere. So, Maddie, uh, how about tell us a story on how you got the nickname? Well, the same bloke had got me to wear board shorts everywhere instead of Speedos, and I still thank him for that. Well, I probably don't thank him for this. He started, I, I started, I think it was in 92 I started, and this bloke, Rod Kerbox, started in 93, and we were still wearing the old bowling hat, like if you see him down at the bowling club, the old green, the green underneath and the white on top. And George, yeah. George Quigley at the time was a head guard. He'd bring in 30 or 40 of them, and everyone would try them on. And, of course, the XXL did not fit my head. <laughs> and so he said, oh, we get them from um, – there was a store in the city. I think it's closed now, and they sold all that old stuff. I can't yeah. remember. I the think they were uh, Kubra's, weren't they? Yeah. But there was this, this – like one of those stores in the city that sold all that old type of clothing. I think it's closed down. But I had to go in there, and I asked the guy for the biggest hat, and it, and it still didn't fit. So they had to cut it and put on this – head expanding thing, right, <laughs> and steam it and cut it and get it. And, of course, I told this to Rod Kerr and um, and the word pumpkin head come up. And then a few years later I was over in the Greek Islands lifeguarding of all places and email had come in and my cousin, I was writing letters, he goes, what are you doing? Get on the email. I don't even know what email was. And so my first email address was pumpkinheadmc. <laughs> And then and it and evolved from there. Like everything in Australia, it gets shorter and shorter and shorter. So it's pumpkin head and it, now it's just end up as head. Yeah, I think it's just easier than saying pumpkin head. You know? <laughs> and, and it's quite it, – it was the biggest circumference ever. You know, my massive shoulders, you can't tell, but it, it is apparently quite big around the circumference in a certain spot where your hat sits, yeah. Yeah, I must say, though, it doesn't look like it. Looking at you like normally, you wouldn't think it was an oversized head. 
Well, it's probably the head's quite long as well. It's long and it's round, but if it was maybe it wasn't so long, it would look fatter. Yeah. <laughs> and and what about those nicknames? They just stick, don't they? There's ones you don't really want. They stick. Yeah, that's not too bad a one. Like when I was a little kid, my nickname was Hot Dog, and <laughs> and I don't know why I didn't even eat hot dogs. This guy called me Hot Dog, and it stuck like glue. And I was Hot Dog for years, you know. So. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but head is a probably a step up from hot dog, I suppose. Did you ever find out how you got the nickname hot dog? Yeah, I know how I got it. I was playing British Bull Rush in a playground, and this is a asphalt playground. We're playing tackle. This is in '74 or '75, and the, this kid who was the coolest kid in the school, and he was in the middle. He was like an older boy, and we were year fives, so ten years old, and he just looked at me. And when you name someone to run, he went, hot dog. I don't know why he did it. And everyone, you know, they're all 10 or 11 years old, and they all thought it was hilarious. And that was my nickname for the next probably 10, 15 years until I sort of didn't tell anyone, went off to, uh, you know, did my plumbing apprenticeship and didn't tell anyone my name was hot dog. So, yeah, lost it there. <laughs> Mate, it's uh, great having you in chatting about your uh, nickname. It's uh, fascinating for people listening overseas because – Australians all get some sort of a nickname, whether it's from something they do or from their last name yeah. or it's, it's amazing. Yeah, well, just having a big head. Well, heads, I, I, know, <laughs> yeah, I know who I am, you know, so there you go. <laughs> now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from... Stuart, now he's from Queensland and his question is, I see a lot of blue uniforms but I also see a lot of red and yellow uniforms. What is the difference? Well, pretty much the red and yellow is traditionally the volunteer movement and then the professional lifeguards are sort of in the blue currently. There was a, a time where in white, I think a lot of the Gold Coast lifeguards are in white still. So it's a definition between professional lifeguards and volunteer lifeguards. So thanks for the question, and uh, I'll catch you all next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.